when I wears my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. Everything you hear in this episode is fair use, Creative Commons license. This is episode 167, and I'm your host, Miguel. In this episode, we're going to listen to some poetry and some sound clips of an author by the name of Charles Bukowski. He was born in 1920, passed away in 1994 at Los Angeles, California, American author, born in Germany. I believe he uh, came over to Los Angeles when he was like three years old with his parents. Rough life, you know, the whole nine. You'll, you'll hear it in his work. But one of the reasons why, a lot of people view Bukowski as a nihilist, you know, just darkness and no happiness and everything like that. But that really isn't true. When when you listen to his work, you're, you're going to hear the depth of his emotions that he goes into as far as, as, far as suffering, ecstasy, just life in general. And, and he kind of takes every, everything to the extremes. He doesn't have a filter. This guy just kind of puts it out there the way it is. And, you know, the world does need people like that. That That's one of the beauties of poetry is that it doesn't really make sense as far as looking at the words and the composition, but it delves much deeper than any normal words could ever do because, again, it's poetry. And it's unexplainable, but poetry has a way of touching people in a way that normal words don't. The power of Bukowski is that he takes charge of his own life and he doesn't leave the actions, the results, the goals, the aspirations of his life. He doesn't leave it in the hands of other people. He came up, like I said, he came up underprivileged and, you know, he didn't really become successful until he was 50 years old. But that's, that's Bukowski. So it's, it's kind of hard to get into because it's kind of, kind of an esoteric subject when you get into poetry, especially when you get into Charles Bukowski. Uh, It's an acquired taste, let's put it that way. So in this episode, you might want to make a little effort just to lean in a little bit and, and listen to his words and kind of try to relate with what he's talking about, what the man is talking about, you know, kind of do a little Google search, YouTube him and check him out. Cause I think the guy's guy's pretty deep. And the other thing that I like, and I, I use this word occasionally and I, I, the word is curveball. Okay. Charles Bukowski is throwing you a curveball, something that's out of the ordinary, something that is unorthodox. You know, he's coming through from his own soul, from his inner space, his inner self. And his connection with, with the greater. Because you, you could obviously hear it. Even though a lot of subjects that he discusses are kind of, kind of on the dark side. You can still hear that divine spark within his words. It's a true poet, man. You know. So, we're gonna, again, we're going to listen to some of his work. We're going to get into it. And, uh, yeah, so let's get into it. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to play a poem by the name of Puerto Rican Obituary. Written by Pedro Pitri. Puerto Rican poet out of uh, Spanish Harlem. And it's a classic. It's a classic poem. So I guess this is the poetry episode. So let's get into it. Charles Bukowski was a 20th century American writer and poet known for his unfiltered, potent, and often crude takes on life. 
Bukowski was born in Germany in 1920 and then emigrated with his family to America in 1923. Bukowski had a horrible childhood, beaten regularly by his father, starting at age six. As an immigrant from Germany, Bukowski was ridiculed by other kids for his accent and clothing, ostracized as an outcast throughout his schooling. Into his teenage years, Bukowski developed a condition that covered his face with extreme acne and acne-related blemishes, further intensifying his self-consciousness and isolation. The circumstances of abuse and loneliness imposed on Bukowski as a young child and adolescent laid the groundwork for his perspective on life and his desire to express himself as a writer. In an interview much later in his life, Bukowski said that his father was a great literary teacher because he taught him the meaning of pain, more specifically, pain without reason. When you get the shit kicked out of you long enough, you will have a tendency to say what you really mean, said Bukowski. In his 20s, after two years at college, Bukowski would quit school and make his first real attempt at becoming a professional writer, bouncing around the United States, doing short-term blue-collar jobs while writing hundreds of short stories. However, out of the hundreds of stories, only a couple during this time would go on to get published, and the ones that did found essentially no success. After a couple years, Bukowski basically stopped writing altogether, disappointed by the publishing process and his apparent inability to write well enough to be successful. Bukowski would go on to work various blue-collar jobs for several years thereafter. Then, in 1955, at 35 years old, after about 10 years of not writing, Bukowski nearly died from a serious bleeding ulcer. He survived, however, and then soon after, as fate would have it, Bukowski quit his job, which was at the post office at the time, and began writing again. A couple more years went by, and Bukowski would publish several pieces during this time, but still, nothing was providing much success, and he was forced to return to the post office of which he had originally quit. Counter to the original time though, this time, Bukowski continued writing while at the post office. Before his shift, he would use whatever time he had to write. Bukowski would continue in this for many years, getting a collection of pieces published here and there in underground magazines, all with very little success. With no real sight of success or money or fame or even just creating a living from writing, Bukowski continued writing nearly every day before work for years. Of course, we know how Bukowski's story ended. He is being spoken about right now as a writer a renowned, successful, and important enough one to be spoken about with significance decades after his passing, to be considered one of the greats of all time. Bukowski, however, didn't end up becoming traditionally or publicly successful until he was into his 50s, many more years into the second stint of working at the post office. Only after a long, continued attempt at writing did Bukowski's work finally become noticed and appreciated by an audience, and only after a deal with a publisher who agreed to fund Bukowski's work did Bukowski begin to make any sort of living from it. At 50 years old, on the tail end of the traditional career timeline, Bukowski got his first real shot and took it. After it would seem like to many that it was over, it began and he would soon become increasingly successful and famous in the literary world and culture at large not long after. It took Bukowski years and years of writing and toiling and trying to finally have circumstances work out in his favor so he could gain traction and find success as a writer, to get what he wanted since he was a teenager and fulfill what he believed his life was for. In this, it is at least initially perplexing that his gravestone reads right now, don't try. A message that seems rather grim, especially for a gravestone, as well as counterintuitive to his story. How could a man who became successful in fulfilling his idea of himself, a man who, although it took a while, found immense respect and recognition for his craft, all because of his relentless trying, how could this man leave the words, don't try, as his final offering? Arguably, perhaps this is where the most important idea can be found, not only in Bukowski's work, but in Bukowski's life. In a letter to William Packard, a publisher, friend, and fellow writer, Bukowski wrote, too many writers write for the wrong reasons. They want to get famous, or they want to get rich, or they want to get laid by the girls with the blue bells in their hair. 
When everything works best, it's not because you chose writing, but because writing chose you. It's when you're mad with it, when it's stuffed in your ears, nostrils, under your fingernails. It's when there's no hope but that. In this letter, Bukowski is referring to aspiring writers, but he's arguably referring to something much larger, the notion of purpose and success and creative endeavors in general. When you were very young and someone asked you for the first time what your favorite color was, and you decided that it was blue or red or whatever else, perhaps it felt like a choice, but it wasn't really. No one chooses how colors make them feel and why some seem to paint onto the brain with better feelings than others. We can describe the reasons why we like the colors we like, but we can't choose why we do. The color, sort of, chooses us. In a relatively low-stakes situation like our favorite color, it's easy to just realize which one feels best and declare it without trying. How one defines their purpose and carries out the bulk of their life, however, is not so easy nor so low stakes, making it inevitably more complicated, convoluted, and challenging. Although perhaps it is, at its core, somewhat the same as knowing your favorite color. In the same letter to Packard, Bukowski went on to say, We work too hard. We try too hard. Don't try. Don't work. It's there, looking right at us, aching to kick out of the closed womb. In this, Bukowski alludes to the idea that if you have to try to try, if you have to try to care about something or have to try to want something, perhaps you don't care about it, and perhaps you don't want it. Perhaps it isn't your favorite color. Throughout his life, Bukowski constantly returned to writing, never reducing or modifying his voice for the sake of something else, never letting the rejection or the suffering throughout the process ultimately take writing away from him. It's not that Bukowski didn't try, it's that he didn't try to be something that he wasn't. He tried to be a writer, but he didn't try to want to be a writer, nor did he try to write how he wanted to write, he just did it and kept on doing it. At least creatively, we seem to often perform at our best when we are ourselves, natural and honest, attending to who we really are and what we really want to say or do, without the addition of ulterior motives, without forcing it or overthinking too much. And perhaps this is, in part, what Bukowski meant. Truthfully, no one other than Bukowski can say or know exactly what Bukowski ever really thought or meant in anything. And none of this is to suggest that something as hard and complicated as purpose and passion and desire and success is easy or prescribable, because it isn't. It's all as unclear and complicated as the very brain that contrives the whole system. And it's not as if writing or filmmaking or painting or making music or business or whatever else must come easy to the writer or filmmaker or painter or musician, etc., in order for it to be the right thing or for them to be great at it. But it is likely, however, that if the pain and endurance of working through the process does not feel worth it, and you are not compelled to do it even in the face of rejection or hardship or sacrifice, then perhaps it is here where Bukowski might say, don't try. But if it does, if the thought of not doing the thing hurts more than the thought of potentially suffering through the process, if the thought of a life without it or never having tried it at all terrifies you, if it comes to you, through you, out of you, almost as if you're not trying, perhaps Bukowski might say here, try. And if you're going to try, go all the way. Charles Bukowski. Born like this, into this, as the chalk faces smile, as Mrs. Death laughs, as political landscapes dissolve, as the oily fish spit out their oily prey. We are born like this, into this, into hospitals which are so expensive that it's cheaper to die, into lawyers who charge so much it's cheaper to plead guilty, into a country where the jails are full and the madhouses closed into a place where the masses elevate fools into rich heroes. 
born into this, walking and living through this, dying because of this, castrated, debauched, disinherited because of this. The fingers reach toward an unresponsive God. The fingers reach for the bottle, the pill, the powder. We are born into this sorrowful deadliness. There will be open and unpunished murder in the streets. It will be guns and roving mobs. Land will be useless. Food will become a diminishing return. Nuclear power will be taken over by the many. Explosions will continually shake the earth. Radiated men will eat the flesh of radiated men. The rotting bodies of men and animals will stink in the dark wind. And there will be the most beautiful silence never heard. Born out of that, the sun hidden there, awaiting the next chapter. My father was one can of beer, a day at the ball game, a color TV, a lawn to mow, a son in college, a pool table, a power saw, a workbench. A joke about sex, a child to scream at, a neighbor to hate, a door to lock, a bank to visit. Four pairs of shoes, a light suit, a dark suit, a deck of cards, hospital insurance, life insurance, an inner spring mattress, a talking barber. Memories of war, a diploma, an attic, fire insurance, a pet dog, a pet cat, a camera, tape recorder, a Christmas Eve, a chicken dinner, a Thanksgiving dinner, a Sunday drive, church, garden, cigars, garbage disposal, the right to vote, a mahogany coffin, one day of mourning, forget it. All right. Style. Style is the answer to everything. A fresh way to approach a dull or dangerous thing. To do a dull thing with style is preferable to doing a dangerous thing without it. To do a dangerous thing with style is what I call art. Bullfighting can be an art. Boxing can be an art. Loving can be an art. Opening a can of sardines can be an art. Not many have style. Not many can keep style. I have seen dogs with more style than men, although not many dogs have style. Cats have it with abundance. When Hemingway put his brains to the wall with a shotgun, that was style. Or sometimes people give you style. Joan of Arc had style. John the Baptist, Christ, Socrates, Caesar, Garcia Lorca. I've met men in jail with style. I've met more men in jail with style than men out of jail. 
Style is a difference, a way of doing, a way of being done. Six herons standing quietly in a pool of water. Are you walking out of the bathroom naked without seeing me? Generally speaking, you're free till you're about four years old. And then uh, five arrives. Then you go to grammar school, and then you start becoming demanded and solved and orientated and shoved into areas. You lose what individualism you have. If you have enough, of course, you retain some of it. But most don't have enough, so you become watchers of game shows, you know, and things like that. And you work the eight-hour job with almost a feeling of goodness, like you're doing something. And you get married like marriage is a victory, and you have children like children is a victory. But most things most people do are a total grind. Marriage, birth, children. It's something they have to do because there's nothing else to do. There's no glory in it. There's no steam. There's no fire. It's very, very flat. And the earth is full of them. You're doing some dumb thing over and over and over again. You get caught into the stricture of what you're supposed to be, and you have no other choice. You're finally molded and melded into what you're supposed to be. I didn't like this. And I didn't like the eight-hour job. I didn't even like the four-hour job, even though I couldn't get one. So I decided I'd rather starve, live on the edges of nowhere, than do anything at all, than become anything labeled. So for 50 years, I was a scarecrow unlabeled, and now I'm supposed to be a writer. There is a loneliness in this world so great that you can see it in the slow movement of the hands of a clock. People so tired, mutilated, either by love or no love. People are just not good to each other, one-on-one. -on -one. The rich are not good to the rich. The poor are not good to the poor. We are afraid. Our educational system tells us that we can all be big-ass winners. It hasn't told us about the gutters, or the suicides, or the terror of one person aching in one place alone, untouched, unspoken to, watering a plant. People are not good to each other. People are not good to each other. People are not good to each other. I suppose they never will be. 
Too much, too little. Too fat, too thin, or nobody. More haters than lovers. People are not good to each other. Perhaps if they were, our deaths would not be so sad. Pedro Pietri, founder of the New Yorican Poets Cafe, reading his renowned poem, Puerto Rican Obituary. Puerto Rican Obituary. They were, they were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They work, they work, they work and they die. They died broke, they died owing. They died never knowing what the front entrance of the first national city bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kin, all die waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management, all die dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night, screaming, Mira, Mira, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000, all die hating the grocery stores that Sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All die waiting, dreaming and hating. Dead Puerto Ricans who never knew they were Puerto Ricans, who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandments to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked skulls and communicate with their Latino souls. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, from the nervous breakdown streets where the mice live like millionaires and the people do not live at all, are dead and were never alive. Juan died waiting for his number to hit. Miguel died waiting for the welfare check to come and go and come again. Milagros died waiting for her ten children to grow up and work so she could quit working. Olga died waiting for a five dollar raise. Manuel died waiting for his supervisor to drop dead so he could get a promotion. It's a long ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery where they were buried. First the train and then the bus and the coal cuts for lunch and the flowers that will be stolen when visiting hours are over. It's very expensive, it's very expensive, but they understand, their parents understood, it's a long non-profit ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow. Dreams, clean-cut, lily-white neighborhood, Puerto Rican is seen, $30,000 home, the first pigs on the block, proud to belong to a community of gringos who want them lynched, proud to be a long distance away from the sacred phrase, que pasa? These dreams, these empty dreams from the make-believe bedrooms their parents left them are the after-effects of television programs about the ideal white American family with black maids and Latino janitors who are well-trained to make everyone and their bill collectors laugh at them and the people they represent. Huang died dreaming about a new car. 
Miguel died dreaming about new anti-poverty programs. Milagros died dreaming about a trip to Puerto Rico. Olga died dreaming about Rio Jewelry. Manuel died dreaming about the Irish sweepstakes. They all died like a hero sandwich dies in the garment district at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Social security numbers to ashes, union dues to dust. They knew they were born to weep and keep the morticians employed as long as they pledge allegiance to the flag that wants them destroyed. They saw their names listed in the telephone directory of destruction. They were trained to turn the other cheats by newspapers that misspelled, mispronounced, and misunderstood their names and celebrated when death came and stole their final laundry tickets. They were born dead and they died dead. It's time to visit Sister Lopez again, the number one healer and fortune card dealer in Spanish Harlem. She can communicate with your late relatives for a reasonable fee. Good news is guaranteed. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, hating, fighting, and stealing broken windows from each other, practicing a religion without a roof, the Old Testament, the New Testament, according to the Gospel of the Internal Revenue, the judge and jury, an executioner, protector, an eternal bill collector, second-hand ish for sale, learn how to say, como esta usted, and you will make a fortune. They are dead, they are dead, and will not return from the dead until they stop neglecting the art of their dialogue for broken English lessons to impress the Mr. Ghostings who keep them employed as lavaplatos, porters, messenger boys, factory workers, maids, stock clerks, shipping clerk, assistant, mailroom assistant, assistant, assistant to the assistants, assistant, assistant, lavaplatos, and automatic artificial smile and dormant for the lowest wages of the ages and rages when you demand a raise because it's against the company policies to promote speaks, speaks, speaks. Wang Dai hated Miguel because Miguel's used car was in better running condition than his used car. <laughs> Miguel Dai hated Milagros because Milagros had a color television set and he could not afford one yet. Milagros died hating Olga because Olga made $5 more on the same job. Olga died hating Manuel because Manuel had hit the numbers more times than she had hit the numbers. Manuel died hating all of them. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, and Olga because they all spoke broken English more fluently than he did. <laughs> Like a record on a photograph Those days are gone 
Cause he looks so fine Up on that hill They tell me he was lonely He's lonely still Those days are gone forever Over a long time ago The man gave me the news He said, you must be joking, son Where did you get those shoes? Where did you get those shoes? Well, I've seen them on the TV The movie show They say the times are changing But I just don't know Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist.
and check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.